Today is Friday, December 15, 2023. I'm Yulia, and I will be briefing you on the war in Ukraine. The key topics in today's report are Ukraine's EU accession moving forward, Russia's economic woes, and Trump holding up Ukraine aid. Before we begin, though, I have to mention that the brief is available ad-free on Patreon, Substack, and on Apple Podcasts on our new subscription channel, both in writing and in audio. Get exclusive interviews and sneak peeks. Also, take a look behind the scenes. Subscribers to the People's Media Plus on Apple Podcasts receive both The Press Lounge, our other podcast, and Ukraine War Brief without ads, as well as early episodes. Our full interview with Serhii Plochy, Harvard historian and author of The Gates of Europe and the 2023 bestseller The Russo-Ukrainian War is available on Substack and Patreon. If you're listening on Spotify, fret not. A subscription will be available in the coming weeks. As independent media, we rely heavily on the people, pun intended, to fund our work. But if you can't swing a financial commitment, the best way to do that is to leave a five-star rating and review wherever it is that you listen to podcasts. Be sure to tell your friends and family as well. It helps others find the show. With that out of the way, we will start with breaking news and developing stories. After months of practicing, Russia launched at least three Kinjal KH-47M2 air-to-ground missiles at Ukraine on December 14th. At least 53 people were injured in Kyiv after debris fell on an apartment complex in the city. The missiles were timed to correspond with the EU Commission summit and failed in halting EU accession talks. The EU agreed to begin accession talks on Friday, with Ukraine and Moldova set to join the economic bloc. Prick of a prestidigitator and principal provincial peasant Viktor Orban's Hungary was essentially bribed to the tune of 10 billion euros in exchange for leaving the room during the vote. Orban walked out of the summit at the suggestion of German Chancellor Olaf Scholz, and the bloc's 26 other members voted on accession in his absence, the first time this happened in the EU's history. 26 out of 27 member states support the accession talks. Georgia was also granted candidacy status, and the bloc promised to continue talks with Bosnia and Herzegovina. Accession talks are slated to begin on December 18th. If you got excited about brick of a prestidigitator, Viktor Orban following directions, well, he later vetoed the 50 billion euro aid package for Ukraine. Although leaders of the EU are slated to meet next month in an extraordinary session to find another way to send the money. EU leaders will almost certainly find a way to bypass Hungary again. Former Foreign Minister and President of Estonia, Tomas Hendrik Ilves, called for the expulsion of the Putin-shilling country from the European Union on Twitter. Not X, it will never be X. Trump trilobite Rudy Giuliani was ordered by a jury to pay $148 million for defaming Georgia election workers Shay Ross and Ruby Freeman on Friday. This is the latest legal setback for Giuliani. The jury ordered $74 million in compensatory damages and $75 million in punitive damages. In the federal court where the case was tried, compensatory damages are extremely hard to overturn on appeal, and we see no clear path for the verdict to be set aside. This verdict will follow him around until the day he dies. And it can't be discharged in bankruptcy. The disbarred attorney also faces RICO charges in Fulton County, Georgia, and several of his co-conspirators have already pleaded guilty. 
we think he'll do swell in Fulton County's notorious prison system. The armed forces of Ukraine attacked Kursk, Russia, with drones and occupied Akyar, known by its Russian-assigned name Sevastopol, Kerch, and Jankoy in Krym, known by its Russia-assigned name of Crimea, with cruise missiles on Friday. The airfields in Akyar and Jankoy were attacked, and we believe the Kerch Bridge was attacked as well, but cannot confirm at the time of recording. Occupied Donetsk was also attacked, resulting in a huge explosion and fire at an unknown Russian military facility. Aw, sad. The Russian GRU, or Military Intelligence Service, coordinated a cyber attack on Kyivstar, one of the three major Ukrainian telecommunications companies. The GRU gained access to Kyivstar's systems through a phishing email sent to an employee and took down both cellular and land-based internet, calling, and texting service throughout the country. The blackout thwarted two-factor authentication text messages and air alert warnings, locking people out of their bank accounts and other critical services. LifeCell and Vodafone, Kyivstar's competitors, haven't responded to our request asking if it was them. My aunt is... Skeptical. For legal purposes, this is a joke. No, really, we did not send a request. But I do use LifeCell, and I do think it's more reliable. Abiding by the tradition of throwing ourselves at Ukrainian advertisers, LifeCell, we're available. This is not sponsored. Yet. The Telegraph, owner of the popular Ukraine The Latest podcast, is being bought by an investment firm based in a country well-known for protecting journalists and never, ever, ever, ever interfering in news coverage called the United Snope Arab Emirates. If you think about it, it's really not that much of a change. They just swapped kingdom for Arab Emirates. The former head of the UK's foreign intelligence agency, MI6, issued a statement condemning the acquisition of the major UK news outlets, The Telegraph and The Spectator, by the Emiratis, saying, quote, It's just really, I think, completely unacceptable as a matter of principle, even if they're saying that they will guarantee complete editorial freedom. The other thing that is slightly worrying is the extent to which the Gulf states are developing their relations with the Chinese and trying to be much more independent in terms of their foreign policy despite the fact that they are an ally to the UK. End quote. The deal still has to be approved by Oxcom, the UK's media regulator. But it's interesting that the agency hasn't yet blocked the deal. Finally, a deranged Ukrainian man threw at least three grenades in a closed meeting room in Zakarpatya Oblast in the Transcarpathian Mountains. Twenty-six people were injured, with six in serious condition. The Security Service of Ukraine, or SBU, has arrested the attacker, who claimed he was, quote, upset that he wasn't elected as the local council secretary. Man, that would have been a phenomenal choice. A video of the attack, which was recorded on closed-circuit TV, is available on our Substack. Our Canadian friend and research contributor, John Stamp, says it's reminiscent of a school board meeting in these here United States. Not a great look for us, but then again, in the past couple of years, it seems pretty on brand. Now, the line of contact.
For our purposes, the line of contact is the location where small arms, tanks, APCs, and mortars are in direct engagement with the enemy. The General Staff of the Armed Forces of Ukraine releases a daily report at 6 a.m. each morning that includes a breakdown of Russian losses for the past 24 hours. From Saturday, December 2nd, through Friday, December 15th, 12,700 personnel, 135 tanks, 269 armored personnel carriers, 158 artillery systems, 10 multiple launch rocket systems, 3 air defense systems or their components, 232 UAVs, 40 cruise missiles, 289 various tactical military vehicles, that includes fuel trucks, cargo vehicles, and light utility vehicles. Think Humvees, but the ones you get from Wish. Or AliExpress. It's very popular in Russia these days. They also lost 51 pieces of special equipment, which could be anything from mobile generators to communication equipment to mobile shower facilities, although Russians don't take showers. This brings us to a grand total of 344,000 personnel, 5,700 tanks, that's a lot of scrap metal, 8,100 artillery systems, 920 multiple launch rocket systems, 605 anti-aircraft systems, 324 aircraft, 324 helicopters, 6,200 UAVs, 1,600 cruise missiles, 22 warships promoted to submarines, one submarine deployed to the scrap metal detachment of the Russian Navy, 10,700 various vehicles and fuel tanks, and 1,200 pieces of special equipment. The general staff also reported 1,173 combat engagements along with 1,400 incidents of shelling in settlements in Chernihiv, Sumy, Kharkiv, Luhansk, Donetsk, Zaporizhia, Kherson, and Dnipropetrovsk oblasts. Late autumn snows in Bazdorizhia generally slowed the operational tempo of the fighting across the contact line, in Donetsk in particular. There, it's been snow and ice for four days straight. Dang nabbit! We assess the likelihood of any more major offensives this year has dropped significantly. We also assess, given the consensus that the counteroffensive has failed, that we will see more positional fighting along the contact line as Ukrainian forces dig in for the winter, and for the rest of 2024. This will continue to be a long war, and arms shipments and pledges from allies have come too late for any major shifts along the front in the coming months. This isn't saying the war is stalemated. Take it from Michael Kaufman, the military analyst at, uh, way too many major American think tanks, who had this to say on the Power Vertical podcast hosted by Brian Whitmore. It is not really a stalemate. In most material categories, artillery ammunition production, production of equipment, production of drones, production of strike means, and manpower availability, Russia's advantage looking in 2024, to pretty much that whole year. And it may also end up being advantage in 2025, depending on how things play out. So it's not a stalemate in practice. That advantage is not decisive. It's not crushing in my point of view, but it is acknowledged. It is acknowledged in Ukraine. And it's important for people to understand it because when folks say stalemate, it conjures a sense of, oh, I can let this thing go. Meaning we don't have to focus on as much. Maybe this war will freeze or maybe something else will happen here. That's not the case. Actually, a lot of decisions have to be made by Western countries now. If they don't want Russia to sustain an advantage in this war, heading in through 2024 to 2025, a lot of important decisions have to be made still. So you can't take the whole stalemate thing for granted. It's just not the case. Next, 
the war is fundamentally an unstable system. There's no stable stalemate in place. A lot of things play out in war in a nonlinear fashion. So the Russians are going to try to keep attacking and take the initiative. And they're going to try to take more of the Donbass. And it's going to be a challenge for Ukraine to reconcile things they're going to have to do next year. And I'll outline them briefly as on the one hand, I think the best way to think about next year is as a build year, a year during which Ukraine tries to retain initiative while reconstituting the force and building up the capability for later in 2024, 2025, right? Setting the conditions for the ability to like prosecute a theory of success or a theory of victory down the line. But there's an obvious dilemma. How do you try to fight for the initiative and pressure the Russian military to prevent them from affecting force reconstitution while trying to do the same thing yourself, right? And the answer is, it's going to be hard and you probably can't. You're going to have to pick what you can do. So I see a real tension between trying to put together a new theory of victory, trying to put together another offensive operation, and to be clear, where we are with artillery ammo, I don't think we can resource another offensive like this. I don't actually think we can resource another major offensive in the first part of next year, or maybe even all of next year. And Ukraine has a lot of issues to resolve itself in force reconstitution and training and force quality and manpower too. I know that may cut across some fairly idealistic notions I've heard that Ukraine will just keep going in the offensive and things are going to keep happening into next year. I think Ukraine has the ability to leverage pressure points on the Russian side, like the Crimean Peninsula. I think Ukraine can develop and substantially scale up its production of long-range strike means and create real problems for the Russian military for Russian air power, for Russian forces in Crimea and around Ukrainian borders in Russia. So I think Ukraine has quite a few opportunities to prosecute campaigns, just to be clear, because I think the notion as well, there's a stalemate on the ground, so nothing's happening. But if that was going to happen next year, next year is going to be pretty dynamic, actually. But do you expect the front to move much? No. It's like we have a frozen front. We don't have a frozen conflict, but we have a frozen front in a lot. Okay, but the front isn't all that matters. What happens to the forces of matters? On December 6th, Ukrainian Armed Forces Day, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky ordered the construction of an extensive network of battlefield fortifications to help troops hold the line, acknowledging the difficulty of the fight to regain occupied territories. Quote, is there really an alternative? No. End quote. Over his me in the island... Maybe you remember it as Snake Island in the Black Sea on December 8th, Ukrainian air defense sent a Russian Su-24 fighter bomber into the drink, along with its two-person air crew. While the plane can be replaced, allegedly, assuming Russia can produce anything more complex than a toaster now, the crew cannot. A well-trained and experienced crew is much harder to come by. Russia is throwing more meat into the grinder despite minuscule gains so Russian president-slash-dictator Vladimir Vladimirovich Putin can win his election campaign in March 2024 with 98% of the votes in a totally fair bid to remain Tsar. The UK Ministry of Defense, in its December 12th intelligent report, assessed that Russian forces are highly likely to continue fighting at night throughout the war in Ukraine. 
Russia's military seldom prepared for night fighting, instead staging daylight events to impress visiting senior officers. Numerous reports from combatants have highlighted this trend since the start of the full-scale invasion. Night vision goggles have frequently been featured high in demand in the list of equipment Russian units request from their families and supporters. Remember Rain TV and their fundraiser for the poor Russian military? Yeah, parts of it were for night vision goggles. There is likely a cultural element to Russia's problem. Russian military training has rarely emphasized night exercises. Or, I mean, really any exercises. Conversely, the update indicates that Ukrainian forces have often received provision of night vision devices from international partners. One Russian soldier is quoted as saying that Ukrainian forces move mostly at night. It seems that Russians have been afraid of an unspecified boogeyman for a long time, and now are seeing those fears come to life. Maybe they need a nightlight and a security blankie? Now for updates from the operational strategic groups. The Khortetsa Operational Strategic Group is responsible for the Kubinsk, Liman, and Bakhmut axes in the northeastern part of Ukraine. Alexander Sirsky, the commander of the ground forces of the armed forces of Ukraine, reported that Russian occupying forces are seeking to capture the village of Sinkivka with assault companies in order to pave the way for the blockade of the town of Kubinsk. The Russians are currently deploying reserves in the area. Quote, the enemy is trying to capture the town of Sankivka with assault companies in order to set the stage for blocking Kupinsk. However, they're suffering heavy personnel losses. Therefore, they've started to move their reserve assault formations to the area. End quote. Since the Russian military doesn't seem to believe in rotating troops from the front to allow them the chance to rest, refresh, and regain strength, these reserves are most likely the remnants of previously shattered units, wounded soldiers returning to the front, and, of course, the obligatory untrained and ill-equipped raw conscripts, whose only contributions is in their numbers. Unless you count their contribution to Ukraine as a drain on Russian resources on the front. The Tavria Operational Strategic Group is responsible for the Avdiivka, Marienka, Shakhtarske, and Zaporizhia axes in the central eastern and southern part of Ukraine. Russians continue to slowly advance near Avdiivka, moving towards the sewage treatment plant. Honestly, where they belong, sometimes the comments just write themselves. Weather conditions continue to hamper fighting for both sides. Colonel General Alexander Stupun, a spokesperson for the Ukrainian Tavrisk Group of Forces, reported that over 40,000 Russian troops are engaged in the Avdiivka direction. He also noted the redeployment of reserves from the Storm Z units and inadequately trained and provisioned mobilized personnel to compensate for losses. That's a lot of meat for the grinder, no matter how you look at it. In the December 11th UK intelligence report, approximately 40% of all fighting on the contact line is conducted in this one area. While enabling the Russians to make gains here, it allows the AFU space to properly dig in and prepare defensive positions elsewhere, conserving manpower and supplies to enable strong offensive operations come 2025. A quick reminder that Commander-in-Chief General Valery Zaluzhny said that reconstitution and training more troops is one of the key hurdles Ukraine has to overcome for victory. We see 2024 as an opportunity to prepare for a large offensive in 2025. 
The Odessa Operational Strategic Group is responsible for Kherson, Krym, and the Black Sea. The Institute for the Study of War reported on December 10th that Ukrainian defense forces are continuing ground operations on the left, or eastern, bank of the Dnipro River in Kherson Oblast, holding their positions and fighting with the Russians near the village of Krynky. The general staff reported that Ukrainian forces maintain positions on the east bank of the Dnipro River and are striking Russian positions there. Russian sources claimed that fighting continued near Krynky and noted a sustained high tempo of Ukrainian operations. Some assessment here. Maintaining this bridgehead across the Dnipro River and expanding it as far as possible while the weather allows is absolutely critical to future offensives and the liberation of Krym, as the Dnipro is a major waterway. Trying any new crossings of the river comes with extreme risk to the forces attempting to cross and form a new landing on the far side. So it's of utmost importance that Ukraine not get pushed back across the river over the winter. This shaping operation is one to keep an eye on as we enter 2024. Before we move on, 3rd Separate Assault Brigade is responsible for the heroic defense of Bakhmut we all have heard about. This winter, just in time for New Year's, we are fundraising to buy 6 DJI Mavic 3 Pro drones for those guys at the front. Some of them are my very, very close friends, and I'm sure I'll tell you some stories in future episodes. But for now, they really need more eyes in the sky. Our goal is $15,000, and it is the largest fundraiser we have run so far. One Mavic, after taxes and other adjustments, is $2,500. Currently, this fundraiser has been struggling to say the least. We have raised a little over $400 as of this recording. If you have the ability to contribute to this fundraiser, please do. It's really important. The link is in the description, beacons.ai forward slash fundraiser, and I thank you in advance. Now, temporarily occupied territories. The Ukrainian Helsinki Union on Human Rights, a union composed of 26 human rights-focused NGOs, reported on December 6th that Russian authorities have resettled up to 800,000 Russian citizens in occupied Krym and have forced around 100,000 Ukrainian citizens to leave Krym since 2014. Russian authorities relied on policies such as preferential mortgage lending, relocation of Russian officials and their families, expulsion of Ukrainian citizens to mainland Ukraine, and encouragement of Ukrainian citizens to move to Russia to free up residences in Krym and encourage Russian citizens to resettle. Occupation authorities in other areas, such as Mariupol, are implementing similar population efforts right now. The Union also reported that Russian authorities are currently struggling to encourage Russians to resettle in Krym due to the high intensity of hostilities there. Can you say cultural genocide, boys and girls? I know you can. Speaking of genocide, oleaginous Piggly Wiggly and advisor to the illegitimate governor of occupied Krym, Oleg Krychkov, took to Telegram on December 12th to say that the Kerch Bridge is open for business. Which means the Kerch Bridge was definitely not open for business. 
Ukraine has been attacking the bridge, a key ground line of communication, or GLOC, that's a supply line, via cyber attack, sabotage, drones, and cruise missiles, repeatedly over the past couple of weeks. We thank the oleaginous Bigly Wiggly for his formidable contributions to the information space. A large-scale fire broke out in Russian-occupied Makiivka, Donetsk Oblast, after a powerful explosion, Militarne reports. Local telegram channels published photos and videos of the event. According to the report, an oil depot there was used by Russian invaders. Powerful flames and a column of black smoke from the fire can be seen for many kilometers. The depot contained fuel and lubricants. On social media, locals wrote that a powerful explosion occurred before the fire, the origin of which is currently unknown. The users also suggested that the Artemis oil depot was destroyed. That should put a damper on moving just about anything that requires fuel. Due to Russia's near-universal reliance on rail to transport its war material, the AFU are repeatedly striking rail depots, marshalling yards, and switch junctions. A classification yard, marshalling yard, or shunting yard is a railway yard found at some freight train stations, used to separate railway cars onto one of several tracks. The strikes impair Russia's ability to move men and arms to and from the front lines. Particularly hard hit is the rail system of occupied Luhansk Oblast, which has been under the Russian yoke for a decade, with all the neglect and terrible maintenance that comes with it. Unfortunately, this also has the unintended consequence of preventing movement of essential goods to Ukrainians trapped behind enemy lines. The effectiveness of the AFU at disrupting these G-locks has prevented occupation forces from restoring reliable rail service. After the war, Ukraine will have the monumental task in returning functionality to the shattered infrastructure once the occupiers are successfully demobilized. Next, the home front. On the 8th of December, the Verkhovna Rada, that's the Ukrainian parliament, announced that it had passed bills required for Ukraine's integration into the European Union. 298 out of the total of 401 deputies voted for the law. The newly adopted laws increase the staff of the National Anti-Corruption Bureau of Ukraine, expand the powers of the National Agency on Corruption Prevention, and regulate the rights of national minorities in Ukraine. If only the United States had a national anti-corruption bureau that wasn't FBI. A girl can dream. The Rada also adopted a law that separates the Specialized Anti-Corruption Prosecutor's Office into a separate prosecutorial body, which is supposed to boost the effectiveness of the fight against corruption among top-ranking officials in Ukraine. We're not looking at you, Mayor of Lviv, whose wife just so happens to be the richest woman west of Kyiv. Nope, not at all. Hi, Andriy Ivanovich, if you're listening. Just kidding. Please don't forward it to him, because I still have to live in his city. Last Friday, President Zelensky signed all the bills into law to implement the European Commission's recommendations. Ukraine still needs to adopt a law regulating lobbying to comply with all four requirements of the Commission. Further, it's not clear whether the new laws meet the Commission's recommendations in full. In news that should surprise... no one... An investigation by Scheme, Schemes, an investigative journalism project by Radio Svoboda, has discovered that 
for years, Russia's secret services could have been receiving video from surveillance cameras across Ukraine that run in Russian TRASSIR software. The video footage has likely been transmitted to a server in Moscow. Using digital forensics techniques, Schema found that even before footage from the cameras was sent to operators' phones or computers, the feed was first sent to digital servers in Moscow belonging to companies with ties to the Russian Federal Security Service, or FSB. These cameras, with their proprietary software, were purchased by both Ukrainian state-owned enterprises, including for use at critical infrastructure facilities such as the Chernobyl nuclear power plant, and civilian businesses, including the Velika Kashanya retail chain and Nova Poshta. Ukrainians also purchased them in bulk for security purposes to protect their homes. Um, as if it wasn't obvious before, it's pretty apparent now that you can never, ever, ever ever, 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 trust Russia or any of its businesses. On December 10th, the UK MOD reported that Russia, again, has shifted to attacking Ukraine's energy infrastructure to, again, freeze Ukrainian civilians. At the same time, Ukrainian air defense has become quite robust over the last year. So far, air defense has handled the assaults with relative ease, with the exception of the Kinjal cruise missile attack on Thursday. Russia launched its first cruise missile attack since September earlier this week, launching at least 16KH-101KH-555 cruise missiles from Tu-95 strategic bombers over the Caspian Sea into Ukrainian airspace. All the missiles were successfully intercepted, with only minor casualties reported over Dnipropetrovsk Oblast. So far, none of Russia's cruise missiles have managed to strike Kyiv. We also want to note that many news outlets reported the Kinjal cruise missiles as hypersonic. This description isn't accurate. True hypersonic missiles are able to maneuver while traveling at hypersonic speeds. Once launched from MiG-31K fighter jets, Kinjals travel at 7,000 km per hour, but they have no maneuvering capability and stay fixed on a preset trajectory. They were developed by the Soviet commies in the 1950s and are to this very day, very best in Russian-Soviet missile technology. Three Kinjals were launched at Ukraine from Tula, Russia, on December 14th. Other launches were reported, but they were electronic warfare decoys, targeted the Patriot air battery, and failed. Miserably. The other Kinjals were able to strike an unidentified target in Vinnytsia and the airbase in Starokonstantiniv, known to Ukrainians as Starkon Air Base in Khmelnytsky Oblast. Despite wobbly support from the West, 58% of Ukrainians support continuing to defend the country without any further Western aid. That's according to a poll conducted by the Kyiv Institute of Sociology. Over half of Ukrainians believe that, given a significant reduction in aid from the West, Ukraine must persist in defending itself from Russian aggression, even if it involves the risk of losing further territory. However, every third of deluded respondents believe it's better to agree to cessation of hostilities under conditions of genuine security guarantees from the West. The remaining 10% failed to make up their minds. Um, we have problems with how the survey is presented. The majority of the remaining 42% of people aren't in support of surrender. The cessation of hostilities would buy time for Ukraine to dig in and develop its own defense base to take the fight to Russia at a later time. Under no circumstances would Ukraine willingly surrender. Just wanted to make that clear.
onward to Russia and effectively occupied Belarus. According to The Economist, Russia's economy isn't doing so hot. Several prominent economists project that it might not be able to sustain rising government spending amid increasingly tight supply and growing inflation. Capital fled the country as outside investors withdrew nearly $250 billion worth of investments, including half of their pre-war stocks. Russia nearly doubled its defense spending to approximately 6% of its GDP, which is the highest since the collapse of the Soviet Union. Worse, for them, effective unemployment hovers around 1% due to battlefield losses and draft dodging as labor shortages squeeze the economy further. Labor shortages, unprecedented Western sanctions, rising fuel prices, and lower-than-expected foreign currency reserves have contributed to runway inflation and hampered the Russian central bank's ability to manage the economy. Today, Russian central banker and Kremlin gremlin Elvira Nabiulina announced another 1% increase in base interest rates, bringing the rate up to 16%. In July, the rate was just 7.5%. Nabiulina, hailed by some Western commentators as a consummate technocrat, said inflation was expected to be over 7% this year, nearly double policymakers' target of 4%. She cited the high cost of goods and services, especially in the technology sector, as key driver of rising prices. Yesterday, at President-slash-Dictator Putin's now semi-annual press conference, Putin apologized for egg prices that have now soared nearly 40%. Eggs have been wiped off the shelves as Russians hoard them. For reference, the price of eggs, a food staple, costs the same in some parts of Russia as in the United States, even though average workers' take-home pay is about a sixth of that of the U.S. Russia, well, certainly Putin and his Kremlin cronies, are in a bind here. Putin's sham elections in March confer legitimacy of his regime. The Kremlin will certainly pressure Russia's central bank to keep inflation low, especially leading up to the election. With Russia spending a full third of its budget on the war, Putin will be forced to cut payments to injured fighters and families of killed Russians, increase payments to the security services, and slash funding for domestic services like healthcare, education, and retirement. Shout out to the good Russian economists in the West who said that the West's sanctions won't have any impact on the economy. In another throwback to the 1920s, Colonel General Mikhail Teplinsky, the commander of the bedraggled Dnieper group of forces, has ordered the resurrection of the old White Guard units under a new moniker of Storm Z Penal Assault Unit. The officers in the unit are primarily constituted of those who have a noted inability to command subordinates. Wouldn't that end up including every officer in the Russian army? Hmm. In some Fabulous news. Cyber units of the Defense Intelligence of Ukraine, or HUR, conducted an attack on the Russian tax system. The HUR reports that, quote, During a special operation, military intelligence officers managed to penetrate one of the well-protected key central servers of the Federal Tax Service. More than 2,300 of its regional servers throughout Russia, as well as in the temporarily occupied Krim, were penetrated. End quote. All impacted servers now come with a side of malware.
Further, an associated Russian IT company, which hosts office.ed-it.ru and served the federal tax service of the Russian Federation, was attacked as well. The cyber attack corrupted the configuration files that ensure that the functioning of the extensive tax system of the Russian Federation were completely eliminated. The entire database and its backup copies were destroyed and will have to be built from scratch. The attack will seriously hamper Russia's ability to collect revenue to fund their war crimes. Aw, sad. Actually, no wait. Aw, rad. Next, news worldwide. Double wide. In a massive show of support for Ukraine, the Bulgarian parliament overruled a presidential veto on sending 100 armored vehicles to Ukraine. In a 161 to 55 vote, the Bulgarian parliament chose European and, by extension, global security over their president's ties to Russia. Bulgaria still struggles to rein in about a third of its pro Russian minority, who have nostalgia for the Soviet Union. Well, it's usually just old people being nostalgic over their youth. That, that is an actual psychological study. That misplace said nostalgia as nostalgia of the Soviet Union. Really, it's about being young and robust. In news that raised some serious eyebrow here at The Brief, the U.S. naval base at Norfolk, Virginia, has received at least one shipment of Russian oil directly from Novorossiysk. From Russia with Love was supposed to be a James Bond movie, not a Liberian-flagged tanker with embargoed cargo destined for our Navy. The tanker Avenka, flying the Liberian flag, operated by the German company Transport, shipped approximately 50,000 tons of illicit Russian oil products earlier this week. President Zelensky visited Argentina for the inauguration of President Javier Milei and managed to get the best seat in the house right next to the cornered Hungarian president, Viktor Orban. He literally was in the corner and had no way out. Allowing the Ukrainian head of state an unparalleled opportunity at a captive audience with Putin's biggest puppet in the EU. Zelensky presented Milei with a menorah at the inauguration, and videos of their meeting went viral on social media. We were holding our fire to see if Milei would become a dictator. And he failed the test. Today, he issued an order to the Argentinian security services demanding the arrest and confiscation of children from anyone who protests his radically libertarian regime. Oh, I had hopes for this guy. I mean, he was wacko and strange. But I feel like, considering politics in Argentina, I was hoping that wacko and strange would be a good thing, a refreshing thing, a new thing. Sadly, he's just a dictator in a new candy wrap. A dictator nouveau, if I might say so. The European Commission is developing its European Defense Industry Strategy in order to manage military supplies at the level of the entire Union. This move will not only streamline defense production using economies of scale, but will also speed up defense supplies to Ukraine by moving everything under one umbrella. Under the new strategy, defense supplies will be distributed by the bloc instead of being doled out by individual nations. In a surprise shift away from Russia, especially for Serbia, Serbia and Bulgaria have completed a pipeline that will seriously reduce their dependence on Russian oil, which, considering their camaraderie with Russia, is a wonderful turn of events for Ukraine. 
Romania will aid in Black Sea grain shipments from Ukraine by creating an anchorage in the port of Constanta, which will allow increased exports of agricultural products from Ukraine. The work on the anchorage is scheduled to be completed in March of 2024, well before the next harvest of grain, sunflowers, and delectable Kherson watermelons. A little commentary from me here. I love watermelons. I mean, love, 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 love watermelons. Like, eat them with the spoon. Love watermelons. Like, yep, shove it right in there and scoop it up. My mother hates it. In fact, when I was a kid, she would buy three watermelons at a time. Why? Because both my father and I are heathens who just scoop them up with a spoon. And she would hide the third one for herself to eat it like a normal person in triangles. Well, mother, if you're listening, I know you've had a delightful 12-year break from my watermelon scooping. However, I'm back this summer, and trust me, I will be at it again. Two nights ago, two Iranian Shahed 131-136 kamikaze drones entered Romanian airspace. One Shahed, fun fact, the Arabic word Shahed means witness in English flew four kilometers into Romanian territory on the Romanian side of the Ukrainian border. Russia carried out its largest attack on port infrastructure in Odessa Oblast that night. Although Ukrainian air defense was able to shoot down most Shaheds, sometimes relying on Kyivstar networks for navigation. And they were successfully intercepted. Romania does realize it's part of NATO, right? One would think that repeated incursions by Iranian-sourced drones carrying munitions would trigger some sort of NATO response, air defense included. But so far, we've heard crickets from the Romanians. Poland finally has its new prime minister following October's elections. Donald Tusk took the office earlier this week and hit the ground running. He's negotiating with EU leaders to release tens of billions of euros worth of funds that were frozen by the EU for democratic backsliding under the previous PIS government. He also warmly welcomed Ukraine into accession talks with the EU. After a temporary pause that allowed trucks to flow freely into Ukraine from the Polish side of the border on Monday, Polish truckers resumed their blockade. New Prime Minister Tusk will have to quarrel legislation to prohibit the blockade on national security grounds, which he's committed to. The Russia-backed protesters will likely be forced to the negotiating table by the Polish federal government. In some good news on this front, Slovak truck drivers, on the other hand, lifted their blockade on Thursday. But in some bad news, another Ukrainian trucker has died at the Polish border. Previously, there were two recorded deaths and some hospitalizations. Tusk also had some rather choice words when it comes to support for Ukraine. Quote, I can no longer listen to politicians who talk about being tired of the situation in Ukraine. They're telling President Zelensky that they're tired of the situation. We must remember what the war is about, that Ukrainians are fighting for something extremely important, that their battle began on the Maidan and they're fighting to join the community of the Western world. They want Ukraine to be a democratic, legal state like Western countries, and they're fighting for it now. End quote. Let's now take a moment to discuss the Putin caucus of the Republican Party here. Right now, they're holding up $60 billion in Ukraine aid, and many billions more for aid to Israel, Taiwan, and for the southern border. There are two problems with the supplemental aid package, one in the House of Representatives and one in the Senate. Speaker Mike Johnson and his far-right group of Kremlin caitliffs have likely made two cynical political calculations. The first is that Russia is on their side. 
The second is that quadruply indicted now former President Donald Trump and likely Republican nominee for president believes that Russia supported his candidacy. And he's not wrong about that, by the way. And therefore is a staunch supporter of Russia and everything related to Vladimir Vladimirovich Putin. As the presidential primary kicks off next year, Republicans will fall in line behind Trump and his demands to cut funding for Ukraine off at the knees. The political calculus is a little different in the Senate. There are several senators who caucus with the Democrats running for re-election in very difficult states next year. Democratic Senators Sherrod Brown of Ohio and John Tester of Montana are running in uber-Republican seats that are, as of now, your toss-ups. They need to be seen as doing something for border security to split tickets in what's likely to be a contested presidential election cycle. Democrats Tammy Baldwin of Wisconsin and Jackie Rosen of Nevada are the slight favorites to win next year as well, and the border issue will also be relevant in their races. Democrats will almost certainly lose their seat held by Joe Manchin of West Virginia, who's not running for re-election, and longtime incumbent Debbie Stabenow of Michigan is retiring, opening that seat up for a potential Republican flip. Independent Kristen Cinema of Arizona will appear on the ballot, at least for now, as an independent, and will likely face off against Democrat Ruben Gallego and whatever lunatic Republican nominee there in a three-way race. The window for providing critical security assistance to Ukraine is closing quickly, hence President Zelensky's last-minute visit to Congress on Tuesday. The good news is that we're still confident that the aid will pass, given the stakes here. The House of Representatives may also flip back to Democratic control, especially since New York, Wisconsin, Georgia, Alabama, Louisiana, North Carolina, and potentially a slew of other states will elect their members under new maps, even if nothing else changes. The United States arch-nemesis China is watching closely to see if the U.S. will blink, and Congress knows that. Negotiations seem to be making progress in the Senate as well. A Senate vote is expected next week. Here is Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer. Oh, hey, he's the senator from my state, New York. President Zelensky's message was direct. Ukraine will win the war against Russia if more aid is approved. But... His message the contrary was also true. If no more aid is approved, Putin will win. It's that simple. Ukraine, the West, United States strength as a credible ally are all hanging in the balance right now. Also, President Zelensky urged that we need to pass this aid quickly, because if we don't pass it quickly, it'll send a signal to the whole world that we are abandoning Ukraine and could start a snowball cascading to Ukraine's detriment and to our detriment. If Ukraine falls, it will be a historic and colossal tragedy. If Russia is victorious, future generations will remember this as a moment of shame for the West, for the United States, and for those in the Senate who sought to block it. This is a moment when a friend in need called on our help. We must rise to the occasion. If we abandon Ukraine to the dark forces of autocracy, we will all pay a price. The price won't be tomorrow, meaning next week, but it will be in the months and years to head, but will be an awful price. And everyone who voted against aid to Ukraine will have to live with it. This is a time for Republicans to be serious about reaching an agreement. Serious is the word we are saying to our Republican colleagues. 
It is not a time for one side to demand maximalist fringe policies that they know are unrealistic and then say our way or the highway. If Republican colleagues want an agreement on the border, they must meet us at the middle. They need to show us they are serious. So far, when they just ask for H2, HR2 or something like it, they're not showing seriousness. There are two words to describe Democrats right now. Just like the Republican word should be they need to be serious, the two words that describe Democrats right now, still trying. We are still trying to find a good faith compromise with Republicans, but they must do the same. Now, last night, I got on the phone with Speaker Johnson and urged him to keep the House in session, to give a supplemental a chance to come together. I told him that the House should stay in session because over the past 24 hours, I've been alarmed to see some of the same Republicans in the House and now a good number in the Senate who had previously demanded action on the border are now suggesting there's no urgency to act before Christmas. After months of saying the border is a crisis, that we must get something done yesterday, many Republicans now seemingly prefer to go home rather than pass a bill. If Republicans are serious about getting something done on the border, then why are so many of them in such a hurry to leave for the winter break? Has the border simply been an excuse to kill funding for Ukraine? By Republicans being unwilling to budge on H.R. 2 and getting ready to rush out of town, unfortunately, it may seem the case that these are both excuses and they really want to kill funding for Ukraine and never had any intention of passing it. That's not true of all Republicans, but too many. Enough simply to hold us up right now from getting something done. Do Republicans not realize how thrilled Putin must be right now seeing the gridlock? Russian state TV is even running segments on how great it is for Russia that Congress can't pass Ukraine funding? Think about that. Putin's allies on Russian state TV are running segments right now on how great it is for Russia that aid to Ukraine is stalled. Democrats remain committed to finding a realistic, bipartisan agreement on securing the southern border. We will not accept Donald Trump's cruel border policies as envisioned in H.R. 2, which even Speaker Johnson has reminded his colleagues didn't get a single Democratic vote in the House. But if Republicans show they're serious about meeting us in the middle, we are willing to meet them in the middle. I hope my Republican colleagues take to heart President Zelensky's warnings. The one person happy right now about the gridlock in Congress is Vladimir Putin. He is delighting in the fact that Donald Trump's border policies are sabotaging military aid to Ukraine. I urge my Republican colleagues to show they're serious about getting a supplemental package done. Democrats are still trying and we will continue to work with Republicans in good faith in the coming days. Members of the Republican Party held closed-door meetings with representatives of Prick of a Prestidigitator and Principal Provincial Peasant Victor Orban to push for an end to aid to Ukraine. A diplomatic source close to the Hungarian embassy said, quote, Orban is confident that the Ukraine aid will not pass in Congress. That is why he's trying to block assistance from the EU as well, end quote. You know, there is a conspiracy theory going around that Jews control the world. But has anyone asked whether it's really the Russians? But also, how the f*** is Hungary still in the EU and NATO? Yes, I said f***. CNN published an explosive story on Thursday that finally brought to light the story of a missing, highly classified binder. The binder detailed how Donald Trump was aided and abetted by Russians and was so secret that even members of Congress could only view it at CIA's headquarters in Langley, Virginia.
Trump's indicted former chief of staff, Mark Meadows, is alleged to have removed a copy of the binder from the White House on January 20, 2021, just one day before Trump left office, following his failed coup attempt. It contains sources and methods used by the U.S. and its NATO allies to collect intelligence on Russian active measures in the U.S. and elsewhere. Trump has had a whirlwind week in the courts as well. Special counsel Jack Smith filed a brief for expedited review in the U.S. Supreme Court and the U.S. Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia. Without getting into all the legal details, the outcome of the case will determine whether former presidents can be prosecuted for conduct outside the scope of their presidential duties while in office. We don't believe Trump will win on the merits, meaning there is very little chance the courts will hold that a former president is above the law. But if the appeal drags on, the case might not be tried before the November election. Since Trump's January 6th criminal charges are the only ones likely to proceed to a trial prior to the November election, it's critical that the interlocutory appeal is heard as soon as possible. And the good news is that the Supreme Court seems receptive to hearing the case on an expedited basis, as does the Court of Appeals. In a display of unity, more than 100 European lawmakers have penned an open letter to their American counterparts. The letter, signed by lawmakers from at least 17 countries, including France, Germany, Italy, Poland, and Ireland, is a sign of mounting concerns in Europe about the continuity of U.S. support to Ukraine. The letter reads, quote, A Putin victory would embolden our enemies around the world. They are watching and hoping we grow tired. Ukrainians are fighting, so we don't have to. End quote. And we agree. Even if the aid package doesn't pass, there are still workarounds, such as seizure of Russian assets, $300 billion. We did this with Iraq slash Kuwait during the first Gulf War. Lend-lease was passed, so we are able to lend equipment to Ukraine without limit. We can supply excess military equipment at cost or for free. However, we still need a solution for 155mm artillery shells production because there is a global shortage. Lastly, military and tech. Ukrainian engineers unveiled a new countermeasure against first-person view, or FPV, drones like the Russian Lancet. It's proven effective against lightly armored vehicles, artillery emplacements, and other such soft targets. The new jammer, which weighs a whopping 5 kilograms, that's 11 pounds, has an effective range of 150 meters, or almost 500 feet and shuts down all ability to operate FPV drones within 0.5 seconds of being switched on. The best part is a price that would have made Bob Barker blush. Coming in at 90,000 hryvnias, this gizmo costs a relatively paltry $2,430. It's far cheaper than replacing an artillery piece or a Bradley infantry fighting vehicle. Ukrainian Minister of Defense Rustem Umerov let us know that Falcons will be in the skies over Ukraine imminently. While the training for ground crews and pilots are well underway, at home the preparations for the infrastructure needed to support F-16 fighting Falcon aircraft has begun. Some assessment here. If they're preparing the infrastructure needed to maintain and operate the F-16s, then it's near certain that the initial training batches of pilots and ground crew is nearing completion and these birds will begin soaring over Ukraine in the very near future. Dear Santa, I've been a very good analyst this year, and I would like them falcons for Christmas. Umerov gave a press conference saying, quote, In the short term, we will receive F-16s. In the medium term, 
We also placed an order for the defense forces of the future. But this is 2027-2030. The work is underway. We will receive them soon. We are discussing not only F-16s. The list is huge. End quote. This sounds to me like Eurofighter Typhoons and JAS-29 Gripens are on the menu for a balanced and very capable future air force. Along with the Falcons, there is a chance Ukraine could also field the FA-18 Hornet fighter-slash-attack aircraft. Due to a lapse in a contract with an American company, 41 Hornets that have been retired from the Australian Air Force have set at Williamtown RAAF base since 2021. These aircraft offer a number of advantages for the Ukrainian Air Force compared to the F-16, like a more robust landing gear system, allowing them to operate from remote locations. The Hornets have longer range and an in-flight refueling system that's similar to Soviet-era aircraft already in service in the Ukrainian Air Force. These aircraft are just some of the planes that the Ukrainian Defense Ministry is in talks with its American counterparts to receive. Germany is continuing to show its generosity in its latest report of military aid to Ukraine, which includes 1,750 155mm artillery shells, one Luna NG reconnaissance system, 10 vector reconnaissance drones, 6 border patrol vehicles, 8 Zetros trucks, 100,000 first aid kits and medical supplies, 70 MGW automatic grenade launchers, and cold weather gear, night vision goggles, and other supplies. This is the first time that Germany has supplied Ukraine with the Luna system, and it's one versatile and amazing piece of kit. With a catapult mounted to the back of a man truck, And a net for drone retrieval, the drones have a flight time of 12 hours and an operational range of 300 kilometers, or almost 190 miles. They can be outfitted with a range of reconnaissance gathering tools from electro-optical to thermal imaging, radar reconnaissance, and electronic warfare. With the electronic warfare package, the system can work in tandem quite easily to gem Russian air defense sites, making them easy targets for HIMARS or other weapon systems. Russia is finding out firsthand that the quality of your friend's kit is kind of important. Apparently, the North Koreans don't make high-quality artillery ammunition, which who'd have thunk that? The North Korean ammo is made to the same low standards as in Russian factories, making accuracy for the Russian long-range gunners a thing of the past. Wait, it never really existed to begin with. You can wear my shoes Learn to talk like me And be an angel too Ukraine is about to have a navy once again, thanks to the wonderful subjects of His Majesty King Charles in the United Kingdom, with the expected delivery of two minesweepers. Hey, it might not be a huge navy, but this is a great start. The Sandown-class mine countermeasure vessels MCMVs, will go a long way to clearing the sea lanes, allowing cargo ships to once again ply the waves, bringing Ukrainian agricultural products back to the world's markets. UK Defense Secretary Grant Shapps made the announcement earlier this week, quote, These mine hunters will deliver vital capability to Ukraine, which will help save lives at sea and open up vital export routes, which have been severely limited since Putin launched his illegal full-scale invasion. 
This capability boost marks the beginning of a new dedicated effort by the UK, Norway, and our allies to strengthen Ukraine's maritime capabilities over the long term, enhancing their ability to operate in defending their sovereign waters and bolstering security in the Black Sea. As an island nation with a proud maritime history, the UK and Royal Navy are particularly well-placed to support this endeavor, which will form part of a series of new coalitions between allies to ensure an enduring military commitment in support of Ukraine." End quote. The first 30 2S-22 Bohdana self-propelled howitzers have been assembled for the AFU. The mobile platforms were first built on the Ukrainian cross chassis, but the company has gone through some things recently. First established in 1930, a centerpiece of Stalin's first five-year plan for Soviet industrialization, KHTZ was Ukraine's largest tractor manufacturer, producing both wheeled and tracked tractors. In 2016, the SBU alleged that, at the Kremlin's direction, the Russian owners were planning to decommission the enterprise. The industrial plant in Kharkiv was instead destroyed by Russian shelling on the fourth day of the full-scale invasion in February of 2022. The initial production models of the 2S-22 Bohdana self-propelled howitzers were made for the Belarusian Maz chassis. The current production model is manufactured for the Czech Tatra T8157 chassis. Ukraine is also developing a towed version and is expected to reach a production goal of six of the NATO standard 155 howitzers per month. That concludes our brief today. We'll convene again soon. In the meantime, remember to check your sources and don't fall for propaganda. Join us on YouTube and TikTok for more Ukraine content and live news reports. And if you haven't already, don't just consider, but subscribe to our work on Substack or Patreon. It helps us a lot. With that, do zustrichi! You can wear my shirt, but to